Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Conversations podcast. I'm Dr Louise Tuckwiller, Senior CMO working in two southern regional hospitals. The aim of this podcast is to review emergency topics with a rural and regional perspective. The opinions expressed of a general education encourage everyone to check their local guidelines and those of the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute. I have with me today Dr John Gardner of Faison from Calvary Hospital in Canberra. Thanks so much for joining me today, John. Would you mind just telling us a bit about your clinical role? Yes, Louise, thanks for having me here today. Yes, I've been a FASM at uh, Calvary Hospital in Canberra for the past eight years. Prior to that, I was working in Perth where I completed my fellowship. And prior to that, I worked in Melbourne when I first moved over to Australia. I've been in Australia for 20 years altogether. I've got extensive experience in emergency in Victoria, WA, and now the ACT. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, today we're going to be discussing tachyarrhythmias and synchronised cardioversion. So we'll start with a case. We have a 58-year-old woman who had onset of palpitations one hour ago while getting her breakfast. She had some chest pain radiating to her neck and was feeling short of breath. She's an ex-smoker ceasing 15 years ago and is on tritase for hypertension. Her observations were a heart rate of 175, blood pressure 90 on 55, a respiratory rate of 20, and oxygen saturations of 94% on room air. Her ECG showed a regular narrow complex tachycardia with a rate of 175 with no P waves evident and some infralateral ST depression. Um, So Dr Gardner, what clinical features should we use to determine if a tachyarrhythmia is stable or unstable? So generally, the features you're looking for, whether a tachycardia is stable or unstable, sorry, a tachyarrhythmia is unstable, is signs of shock. So signs of shock include chest pain, include shorts of breath, include dizziness, include confusion. And then if you look at the blood pressure itself, if the blood pressure is low, that would be considered signs of shock as well. And so in this patient, with her having some chest pain and her blood pressure is borderline at 90 over 55, you probably have to do something very urgently to treat this tachyarrhythmia. Okay, so she's most likely got a supraventricular tachycardia, but as you say, has some features of instability. Now, options here include a revert manoeuvre, intravenous adenosine, or synchronised cardioversion. How do you approach which of these would be the best option for a patient such as this? So I say this patient's kind of borderline shock. Uh, They have some chest pain. They have a blood pressure of 90 over 55. So this is something you have to do fairly urgently, whichever um, option you choose. And if a patient's a bit more stable, if they're fairly asymptomatic apart from the palpitations, uh, their blood pressure is more stable, uh, if you get more time to think about what to do. And in that situation where they're more stable, uh, Valsalva manoeuvres and such as a revert manoeuvre may be appropriate. Um, In this patient, as they are proving to be uh, semi-unstable, I think my first choice would be a trial of adenosine, because that could be performed fairly quickly. If that was being unsuccessful, the patient was becoming more unstable, administrate away to DC cardioversion. Okay, so basically, because there's a bit of time with both Mm -hmm. adenosine and the cardioversion, just quickly to set it up, you could go with either of those in a slightly unstable patient. Now, if we had someone who was more stable, 
I've not had a lot of success with a revert manoeuvre. Do you have any advice about how to try and um, optimise this manoeuvre? I don't have much success with myself, to be honest. The literature says it's good. I think any patient that's stable with an SVT, it's worth trying some sort of Valsalva manoeuvre. And if some manoeuvres we have are blowing into a syringe, uh, trying to bear down, or the the most recent uh, most literature is talking about this revert maneuver. And the revert maneuver is basically getting them to valsalva where they're sitting up, yeah. um, and they valsalva about fifteen seconds. Yeah. Um, they do that by either blowing into a syringe, or another method I've seen is that they can blow into a sphygmometer. If you actually take the tubing of a sphygmometer and you get them to blow to about forty millimeters of mercury for about fifteen seconds. Okay. Um, and that's the kind of accurate way to actually demonstrate the valsalvaing. I haven't done that personally, but I've seen some literature saying that's quite successful and that kind of ensures that they're valsalva properly. Um, so you say whatever valsalva maneuver you use, 15 seconds, um, and then you put the patient in the trendelenburg position straight away after that 15 seconds. Okay. Um, my belief is uh, the vert maneuver will work more successfully for young patients and young patients will tolerate it more uh, because the patient's been kind of thrown around in the bed a little bit. Yeah. Uh, with those elderly patients, that's the ones where you can avoid. You certainly avoid doing things like carotid sinus massage in the elderly patients, and those are the ones that you don't. We probably don't respond very well to being kind of thrown back in the bed yeah. into Drindelberg, and so that's I'm more inclined to just go with a chemical cardiac conversion in those patients. Fair enough. And in terms of adenosine, what would you consider a contraindication for a trial of adenosine? So I don't think there's much contraindication to adenosine if they've had a previous reaction to it then that would be something I would avoid adenosine if they have it caused a significant reaction in the past. Um, I'm told severe asthma, and it has to be severe asthma, can cause it problems with adenosine. Generally, adenosine is such a fleeting drug, it's such a short duration of action, it doesn't actually cause much, many, got to be careful here with the word side effects, but any kind of adverse effects. Yes. And a lot of patients uh, don't like the feeling. Yeah. Uh, a lot of patients have had it before and, they, and, they're, and they're quite uh, anxious about having it again because of the feeling it gives them. Yes. But it is very short and fleeting. And sometimes just with, with some TLC, with some reassurance with the patient, uh, it can be tolerated quite well. Yes, yes, I agree. If you sort of explain to them, most mm, people yeah, yeah. are reassured. So mm. do you have any tips on how you administer the intravenous adenosine to ensure it reaches the heart to be effective in view of its short half-life? Yeah, I mean, there's this belief that we should, which some people think they should use three, uh, three-way taps uh, in their uh, cannulas. It lets you kind of administer it quickly. I think, personally, the fewer complications, the better. The idea is you want to uh, inject the adenosine very quickly, followed by a 20 ml bolus of uh, saline very quickly after. What I tend to do, because it's generally the elderly population you're doing this in, it's, I tend to, as I explain it to the patient, give them a bit of TLC. I usually hold their hand and tell them, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to inject this medication. It's going to make you feel terrible. We're monitoring you. It'll just last for a few seconds and you'll feel better after. So then I personally just do it myself. I give whether I'm going to give six milligrams, 12 milligrams, depends on the, what's happened before, what I've decided. Usually I start with six milligrams. Uh, so six milligrams of adenosine injected very quickly, followed by a 20 mil flush very quickly, and then hold the patient's hand just for visual kind of visual prompt. I also like hold the patient's hand up and yeah. just maybe the gravity helps that adenosine get through faster. I don't think that's true. But just hold our hands until you see that uh, kind of um, almost assistly in the monitor um, and then watch the rhythm to see if you've uh, 
rest of them sit there, just say and show them after that. Yeah, that sounds like a really straightforward way to do it. That's great. Now, our patient does have a dose of six milligrams of adenosine via an 18-gauge cannula in the cubital fossa, and she then returns to normal heart rate and her chest pain resolves and the SD depression is almost back to baseline. So when would you do a troponin in a patient who has chest pain or tightness associated with an SVT or even rapid AF? I think that's quite a difficult question. And um, certainly, and I, certainly I split them between SVT and rapid AF. I think they're two different situations. SVT is usually quite a benign rhythm that's not related to ischemia. Well, uh, rapid AF can be related to ischemia. So with SVT, if the post-reversion ECG is completely normal yep. and the patient's asymptomatic, I almost never do a troponin. Because mm-hmm. uh, in that situation, the troponin, a small rise in the troponin is just going to complicate your review of the patient. Yeah. So unless there's any strong indication or I'm really suspecting ischemia after I've been able to assess the patient once they're averted, I would do a troponin in the SVT patients. However, the rapid AF patients is often a different situation. Ischemia can be a cause of rapid AF. Yes. Um, and for that reason, they probably will end up getting a troponin. Okay. Um, and those troponins are often marginally raised because of the rate related to ischemia. Right. And again, what you have to do is end up doing serial troponins in those patients and end up they have to stay a bit longer until you can work out uh, what the disposition is going to be. Okay. All righty. So if the troponin was then stable or, or falling, you'd be yeah. less concerned uh, yeah, as opposed to... a very to... small rise and it wasn't going up, it would be less concerned. Whereas if their troponin is doubling... That's uh, time to call, probably call cardiology and uh, make a better plan for the patient. Okay. Now, we'll now move on to more specifically discuss synchronised cardioversion. Mm-hmm. Now, what would you consider the indications for synchronised cardioversion? Okay. Um, so it's a combination of the rhythm and the clinical situation. Uh, so synchronised cardioversion, you can do it for SVT, you can do it for AF, you can do it for flutter, you can do it for VT. If they're stable, uh, you may consider medical therapy. So when you're doing, but you may have to move on to DC cardioversion if medical therapy has failed, or if there's a preference to avoid medical therapy and just go straight into cardioversion. The other caveat to that is when the patient's got this arrhythmia and they're develop and they're demonstrating signs of shock that we discussed before, yeah, uh, chest pain, shortness of breath, dizziness, confusion, or low blood pressure, and those patients should probably be DC cardioverted uh, in a quicker manner. Okay. And what would you consider some of the actual cardiac rhythms that we wouldn't want to be cardio attempting to cardiovert? Again, those are, it depends on the clinical situation. So there's some rhythms that you'd avoid. Certainly, uh, sinus tachycardia, you wouldn't cardiovert. Multifocal atrial tachycardia, that's a rhythm associated with end stage COPD often, which doesn't respond very well to cardioversion. And then it's more like, Again, we talk about this when we talk about atrial fibrillation, but if there's an underlying pathology that's causing the arrhythmia, it's better to treat that underlying pathology as opposed to treating the arrhythmia itself. And so in some situations, it may be you have to actually treat the underlying pathology as opposed to just going in and treating the rhythm. Right, okay. Now that, sounds, that sounds fair enough. Now, are there some ECG or clinical features that would help us differentiate these rhythms that we wouldn't want to be cardioverting? Again, I think it's not just the rhythm itself, it's the rhythm combined with the clinical situation. So, for example, that multifocal atrial tachycardia arrhythmia that we talked about, that's associated with end-stage COPD. Yes, you see multi, 
multiple different morphologies of P waves associated with the tachyarrhythmia. Uh, they often point in the direction of, of multifocal atrial tachycardia. But it's the whole clinical picture. Usually it's, 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 it's usually something that's not clearly just a, an arrhythmia, but the patient has actually got an underlying condition which is making them sick. Same with, for example, the Joxon toxicity. Often with patients with Joxon toxicity, they'll be demonstrating GI symptoms, neurological symptoms, as well as having uh, that uh, downward sloping ST segment okay. uh, or any kind of arrhythmia with a Joxon toxicity. Okay. And what about variation in the heart rate to try and distinguish, you know, sinus tachy from a from an SVT? Do you find that of any any benefit? I don't often see that as a sign. I don't often use that. Okay. Uh, but I believe um, some clinicians will look at that. Move on to our second case. This is a 45-year-old male who presents after a syncopal episode. He has no cardiac history. Fortunately, he landed on his lounge and has no injuries, and he's otherwise well on no medications. His ECG shows a broad complex tachycardia at a rate of 160. His blood pressure is 80 on 55, respiratory rate 24, and oxygen saturations 96% on room air. So this patient was taken to the resuscitation bay and full monitoring was attached, including nasal prongs with capnography. Preoxygenation was commenced and a second line inserted and an ISTAT venous gas performed for an urgent check of his potassium. We used the airway equipment checklist to check all our airway equipment. Now, Dr Gardner, how do we prepare for the patient for this procedure and what position is optimal? Okay, um, so it looks like we've started with the preparation for this procedure. He's already in the correct area. He's been moved into recess. Next for my preparation, we get my staff together. So you want some nursing staff and you want at least two medical staff, one to perform some sedation and one to do the procedure itself. And then getting the patient ready, so probably 30 degrees head up, making sure that pad, you can put the pad placement on in space to don't need to have their chest shaved or anything, and removing jewellery. And then also just um, developing a plan of how you're going to do the cardioversion where everyone's going to be aware of that plan. Uh, so whether you're going to start with the high jewels or you're going to just do escalating jewels, everyone knows what the plan is. And then we'll talk about the, the uh, sedation plan as well, what drugs we're going to use, what airway precautions we're going to prepare. Um, so everyone's on board and everyone understands what's going to happen. Oh, very good. Now, in terms of the sedation, what sort of drugs and dosage ranges do you tend to use for these unstable patients requiring urgent cardioversion? Yeah, so personally, I don't like to use ketamine in adults. I find ketamine causes adults to be confused and sometimes a bit aggressive. I know other people's preferences are different, but I tend to use small doses of fentanyl, propofol, and midazolam in this situation. Very small doses, titrated very carefully. And the older the patient, the smaller doses. For example, in this 45-year-old man, I'd probably give him one or two milligrams of midazolam to begin with, more for an amnesic effect as opposed to an analgesic effect. Yeah. And then I'd give her a very small dose of uh, fentanyl, 25 mics, and then maybe just 20 propofol to start with and watch his conscious state. As soon as I think he's just in that kind of twilight sedation zone, I'll shock him then. Okay. And if you are someone familiar with using ketamine, is there any issue with using ketamine which can itself cause some tachycardia in this sort of scenario? It's difficult. Uh, yeah, ketamine can cause some tachycardia, which may make any kind of like related ischemia worse. Mm -hmm. Generally, I just avoid it. 
basically it would be reasonable to use a, a regime that you're familiar with using absolutely. yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. Again, you want to use what you're comfortable with. And in this situation, you still use the medications you're comfortable with. But when they're unstable, use smaller doses and titrate very, very carefully. Great. That's excellent. Now, in terms of pad placement, what would you recommend and does it make any difference? Uh, it doesn't make any difference. Um, studies are showing like whether you use actual versus anterior posterior, um, there's no difference in success rate. I personally prefer to use antilateral, uh, antilateral, and for that reason, just because the patients, it's easier to put on. You don't need to move the patient too much, especially those unstable patients. Yep. Okay. And how would the presence of a pacemaker affect pad placement? Yeah, you'll read uh, different things in different literature. Some say three centimeters away, some say seven centimeters away okay. uh, for the uh, pacemaker. And um, if you use that antilateral uh, positioning, uh, mm -hmm. it should be fine. It should be far enough away from the any pacemaker anyway. Okay, all right. Now, often our patients have had a 12-lead ECG using our standard monitor. How do you manage the practical aspects of then changing to the life pack and its pads? And which <clears throat> ECG dots do you tend to, to use and what do you do with those? Uh, I tend to take all the ECG dots off and put the pads on just so they're not getting in the way. Okay. Uh, I tend to use uh, three-lead monitoring and the pads. Um, so we're going to, when we're actually doing the cardioversion itself, uh, we're going to sense through the pads. Yeah. But have the three-lead monitoring on so you can switch back to that um, once uh, you've done the cardioversion. And the three-lead monitoring would be from your standard monitor or from the life pack? Uh, from the standard monitor. From the standard yeah. monitor. Okay. Now, we need to set the defibrillator to synchronise. How do we actually check it's synchronising properly? Yes, that's really important. And the most important thing is after you read about this or learn about this, it's important to just go back and look at the defibrillator you use at your work because yeah. um, they're all slightly different. Uh, but when you synchronize a defibrillator, the defibrillator usually tells you it's synced uh, by de demonstrating maybe a circle or a cross or a triangle that's aligned with the QRS complexes. Okay. Um, pushing the button sync on usually turns that on, and then you can push it off again, it turns off. Um, so it's good to go and have a play with these things um, and just so you fully understand how your defibrillator works and where the buttons are. Okay, and do we need to recheck that it's synchronising between each shock if we need multiple? And that's a really good point. And uh, each defibrillator is different. Some defibrillators take it off sync after they've shot. Some defibrillators stay on sync okay. until you take it off. So it's important to see what your defibrillator does. However, when I do do these DC cardioversions, the last thing I check before I push that shock button is, are we on sync? Um, yep. So that's my last check. Even though I've already put the patient on sync, I'm confident on sync. Just before I actually push that shock button, the last thing is, are we on sync? So I always just double check that as a final uh, precaution. Now, are there any issues with the life pack recognising an R wave in VT versus SVT when doing a cardioversion? It's it's possible um, that the sometimes if you have a hyper hyper acute uh, T wave, the, your your defibrillator could pick up that T wave instead of the QRS when you sync it. I've I've heard about one case where that's happened. Yeah, it's normally it can be fixed just by unsyncing and syncing again, and I'll just see if it picks up the QRS wave. Um, if you're really struggling, you might have to just readjust pad placement uh, slightly, uh, but often it it shouldn't happen. In most cases, okay. it's just uh, this theoretical risk that could happen. And again, it's always when you push the sink, it's not just a case you're pushing the sink, you have to actually check the rhythm 
and make sure the defibrillators are synced correctly. In terms of the actual shock, how many joules would you tend to give and does this depend upon the underlying tachyarrhythmia? So again, the literature tells us that it doesn't matter which uh, which regimen you use, which if you uh, choose to do an escalating number of joules or whether you just start with a high number of joules. I'll tend to start with a high number of joules because I prefer to shock the patient once rather than repeated shocks. Yes. Uh, where some cardiologists feel quite strongly that uh, arrhythmias, for example, a flutter, mm-hmm. uh, probably require just a small amount of joules. Okay. Um, so my personal preference, I usually start with 150 joules. And then if that doesn't work in the first shock, I'll go up to 200. I do know of some cardiologists that will start a flutter on 50 joules, for example. Do you have any other tips or important practical points you can give us on actual the delivery of the shock? So delivery of a shock itself, you it, it's difficult. We have this coach mnemonic, which we use during CPR. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as appropriate in this situation because you've got more time. Yes. Um, and you're not really the, the reason we use the coach mnemonic is to try and prevent minimum or minimize interruptions to the actual chest compressions yes whereas in this situation you're not doing chest compressions mm. um so while the coach mnemonic continue compressions oxygen away all is away charging hands off evaluate and then either dump or deliver the shock as appropriate during cpr yes. it's kind of less relevant in this situation so the most important thing is safety so making sure that no one is around the bed or touching the patient yeah uh, making sure your oxygen is away and then, as I say, just having one final look at the patient where you're charging. And then find the charge button, uh, sorry, the shock button. Mm-hmm. But be looking at the patient when you actually push that button. Don't be looking at your machine. So actually looking and making sure no one's touching. Uh, the other thing with a synchronized cardioversion is you have to hold that shock button down until the shock is actually delivered. Right. A lot of people make the mistake of pushing the button, letting go, and nothing happens. Whereas the defibrillator will not deliver the shock until you actually until it's actually on that QRS when it's synced. And for that reason, sometimes you have to hold that button down for one or two seconds before the shock's delivered. Oh, that's a great, great tip there. Now, I'd just like to move on and have a brief chat about broad complex tachycardias. Mm-hmm. And what's your approach to assessing a broad complex tachycardia? Yeah, and quite difficult. So, I mean, often a broad complex tachycardia comes in and your question is, is this patient in VT or is this SVT with aberrancy or the atrial fibrillation with aberrancy? One thing, if, if the patient's unstable with a broad complex tachycardia, then you should go ahead and DC cardiovert, okay? Yeah. The question is when they're stable, um, there's other medical, other treatment options available depending on what that underlying rhythm is. First thing I'll try and do is get an OCD look at the patient's old notes or try and find an old DCG, yes. uh, which show to see if there has been any left on the branch block or anything in an underlying uh, in an old DCG. And if that is the case, then aberrancy is more likely, mm-hmm. especially if the patient is more uh, is stable and doesn't have any um, significant cardiac history. Looking at the rhythm itself, often VT is faster. Yes. Um, and usually when you, when you get when you get into rates of uh, 180 to 200, it's more likely to be VT as opposed to being the, the uh, SVTs or the AFs with aberrancy. Now, is there a rate below which VT is less likely? So certainly below uh, 150, VT would be less likely. There's a whole lot of, rate, you know, number of features on the ECG that have been proposed to help distinguish VT from SVT with Aberrancy. Mm-hmm. Do you find any of these particularly useful? I uh, not 
Not always, uh, because there's always uh, exclusions to those rules. Mm. Um, again, I think it's more important just looking at your clinical case, looking at the patient's ECG. Also, often it, it's it's not inappropriate to consult our cardiologist co- colleagues as well in this situation as to make a decision as what should happen. Okay. Um, you've got, I say, you've there's got two situations. Either they've got no time because the patient's unstable, and mm-hmm. that where you're going down the the decent cardioversion route, or you've got some time to actually make those decisions. So there's no rush to actually do anything, and you should get as much information as you can, as much help as you can about what's the best treatment for that rhythm. Oh, fair enough. And are there some other non-cardiac causes of tachyarrhythmias we need to consider when assessing a broad complex tachycardia? Mm-hmm. Would you think you have kind of a toxicology uh, yeah. and possible poisonings? That's right. Uh, so certainly, so um, things like the tricyclic antidepressants could cause a broad complex tachycardia by the widening of the QRS complex. Those are times, toxicological arrhythmias, are times where you may not use a standard approach. Uh, okay. You may avoid medications such as amiodarone, right. uh, as, as amiodarone tends to lengthen the QT and, and for, that, for that reason could worsen uh, the cure risk broadening and make your toxicological situation worse. Often with in those situations, it's, it's quite clear that this is a toxicology presentation. Yes. It's, I've never really been in a situation where someone's had a tricyclic overdose and they're hiding it. Right. Usually by the time they're in hospital, uh, the situation is usually quite clear that this is what's happening. Okay. Obviously, we'd also have to consider things like hyperkalemia and, and electrolyte yeah, problems uh, yeah, as well. Yeah. Okay. And do you mind commenting on why it's safer to use electricity rather than medical cardioversion in patients with Wolf, Parkinson-White or pre-excitation? Yeah, so pre-excitation AF, this tachybrythmia when you've got the underlying Wolf, Parkinson-White, if when, when you're looking at that ECG, it's a very angry-looking ECG, I find. It's uh, the variations of the QRS, very fast rhythm. Yes. Um, and often it just doesn't look right. And that's when I think this could this be pre-excitation. Pre-excitation, what you want to avoid is any medications that will slow conduction through the AV node. Okay. Uh, so certainly you want to avoid calcium channel blockers. They're probably the most dangerous to use in this situation. You probably also want to avoid beta blockers and theoretically amiodrone because that one of amyloid's actions is is to slow conduction through the AV node. Yes. Um, you will find in the literature that sometimes uh, the cardiologists suggest to use amiodarone in this situation. Okay. Even though there have been documented cases of of uh, using amiodarone can put the patient into uh, ventricular fibrillation. You cause that blockage to the AV node. The, the impulses go around the uh, alternate circuit. Mm-hmm. I can go, get to rates of 300 or so, and mm-hmm. then it degenerates into VF. Okay. The safest thing to do is just avoid the medications in this situation and use DC cardioversion. Okay. Uh, but you will find in the literature that some cardiologists will say it's still safe to use amiodarone in this situation. Mm-hmm. Even, for example, in this uh, ERC guideline, which is from 2019, it's still saying for pre-excitation, consider amiodarone. Okay. Um, so I think when you do have pre-excitation AF, the best thing to do is consult cardiology early about right. how you do manage this. I personally would probably just prefer DC cardioversion. Certainly, if there was a situation where they were trying a medication and mm-hmm. have DC cardioversion ready to go as well, so the patient would be in recess with the pads prepared, um, just in case you do end up in that realm. Yes, so a bit of variability, but it certainly sounds like cardioversion and WPW is probably the same Safest option. Safest thing to do, yes. That's yes. right. 
Now, look, we'll leave cardioversion of atrial fibrillation or flutter for another podcast, Mm -hmm. and I would encourage our listeners to have a look at the procedures section of the Emergency Care Institute on DC cardioversion, as well as their local guidelines. And our local health district in southern New South Wales has recently updated their guidelines, which includes pictures of pad placement and our defibrillator functions. So thanks so much, Dr. Gardner, for that great overview of tachyarrhythmias and synchronised cardioversion. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks again. Thank you.